Hello, I'm Patrick Chavez, and I'm here with Margaret Shigeko Starbuck, the director of a new play at Boston Court, Unrivaled, playing March 16th through April 23rd, 2023. Hello, Margaret. Um, thank you for coming on. Let's start this interview with a softball question. How is your relationship with your mother? <laughs> uh, great. <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, okay. Now that we've got that out of the way, now we can we can go to some straightforward questions. Um, <laughs> what led you to become a theater director at Boston Court? Why why are you now a theater director, and and uh, how did you end up directing this show? Yeah, sure. So I actually started out in theater, you know, as a young person, primarily acting, but then I uh, got involved with a theater company called Acme Theater Company in my hometown, which was an entirely youth-run company. So we had the opportunity to not only act in the plays, but also design them, produce them, market them, be the technicians for them. And I got really into um, theater design and technical work. And so then I went to UCLA's School of Theater, Film and Television, uh, actually as a scenic design focus, primarily. Mm. And while I was at UCLA, I got really involved in kind of a variety of the classes and tracks that they offered in the program. So I branched out from scenic design and I also took the acting track courses and I ended up taking the directing track course, which was a two-year continuum of classes. And what I really loved about the directing classes was that it allowed me to mix the sort of visual thinking and conceptual thinking that I really loved about design with the in the room community building, like being part of the rehearsal process in a really integral way that I loved about acting. And right. so I thought, well, maybe directing is the route for me because it's kind of the best of both worlds. Uh, so then when I graduated from college, I started assistant directing around town and I ended up meeting uh, Jessica Kubzanski, who's the artistic director of Boston Court. And I became her assistant director um, on three shows that she was directing. And uh, we sort of, you know, built a, a professional relationship over the course of those three shows. And then when Boston Court was hiring for a new position, which was the artistic associate. I ended up interviewing for that job in 2020 and then starting that job in March of 2020, right as the lockdown started, which was kind wow. of a terrible timing, but in a way yeah. also great timing because, you know, it was a it was a really interesting time for the theater industry in the world. And we got to try out a whole bunch of interesting digital theater and, you know, sort of innovative things during the pandemic at Boston Court. And so I've been working at Boston Court Pasadena for three years now as first the artistic associate and now the associate artistic director. Um, mm -hmm. And so as we have been returning to in-person programming, I got the opportunity to direct Unrivaled. And what's really cool about Unrivaled is that in 2021, Boston Court launched our first ever Playwrights Group, which is a year-long program where we work in depth with playwrights on a play that they 
are looking for more development help on. And so Rosie Narasaki, the playwright of Unrivaled, actually uh, submitted Unrivaled to us and we uh, included her in the playwrights group in 2021 and worked with her over the course of the whole year to develop the script. And at the time, I loved the script. I really enjoyed working with Rosie in the playwrights group. But at the time, uh, Playwrights Arena, which is a wonderful L.A. theater company that also focuses on new work, had the uh, world premiere planned. They they were planning to do the world premiere of Unrivaled, and they had had to pandemic postpone uh, right. that the world premiere production. And so Boston Court knew like they already were going to do the world premiere, so it wasn't going to be with us. But then uh, this past year in 2022, we found out that Playwrights Arena was interested in co-producing the world premiere. And so we were really excited because we thought, well, we already have a great relationship with Rosie and with the play. And John Lawrence Rivera, the artistic director of Playwrights Arena, and Jessica Kobzanski, the artistic director of Boston Court, have a long uh, history of directing at each other's theaters and working together. And so it ended up being a great opportunity for the two companies to co-produce this world premiere production. Um, and I was really excited about that because I had been wanting to direct the play ever since I first read it. And it ended up working out really well that I was able to do that. So maybe uh, I hope I heard you correctly. You said you actually went to school for at for film and television, uh, if I'm correct. So like, uh, what no, was the no the, it, no the program at UCLA is is it's like the school of theater, film, and television. But there's like a theater department and then a film and television department. And I was in I was in the theater department. You were you were in the theater yeah. department. Okay, yeah, yeah. got it, got it, got it. Okay, well then that completely changes my next question. I, I well my my next question would be then I've read the synopsis but our audience has no idea what is unrivaled about in your own words. Sure. So yes. unrivaled is an imagined version of an actual period in history in Japan. So it's set in 11th century Japan, which is the Heian period of Japan. And uh, it's set at court, at the court of Empress Teishi. And it's about these two women who were actual historical figures that were ladies in waiting in the court. And they're also legendary Japanese writers. So it's about Sei Shonagon and Murasaki Shikibu, who wrote two of the sort of most canonical pieces of Japanese literature. So Murasaki wrote The Tale of Genji and Sei wrote The Pillow Book, which are still really famous pieces of Japanese literature today. And the play imagines through a really funny contemporary lens what it might have been like if Sei and Murasaki had actually met at court and what their friendship and rivalry might have looked like. And what I really love about the play is how sharp and like hilarious Rosie's dialogue is. So it's written in contem contemporary English. Like it, they don't speak like, you know, super formal people from the 11th century. It's all like totally 21st century. And it's super relatable because it really is a play about being a woman, being a woman artist 
and, you know, being an artist in general and the kind of crippling insecurities that come with being an artist and having your best friends who are also artists be your competition in an industry where sort of artists are pitted against each other for opportunities. Uh, and so it's it's about really, I think, <laughs> a lot of the struggles that we go through as artists living in Los Angeles, where it's like, oh, God, how did that person get that gig? Like, I'm so happy for them. And also, I kind of hate that, that they got that and I didn't. <laughs> um, so I think it will be really relatable for a lot of people, especially artists living in L.A. And I think also, like, Rosie's really thinking about, like, what does it mean to be a woman artist and to like have these sort of burdens of like perception placed upon you like you know that you are always going to be sort of read or viewed through the lens of like being a woman or being an Asian American woman um, and what is kind of how do those limits like define you in both good and bad ways. That's so interesting and one of the things that kind of really after you, you told me that is like, while I'm sure there was definitely um, a lot of struggle for women at the time, Japanese, this show is about Japanese women. It's surprising to me that it's such a long time ago, you said, 11, I think you said 11th century. And at that time, no, were they known at that time as being very famous writers? Yeah, so the Heian period is actually a really interesting moment in Japanese history. So you're right, it's 11th century Japan, which is literally a thousand years ago, right? But at the time, Japan was enjoying kind of like a peaceful period of time. So there were not big wars happening. And so Japanese culture was able to really kind of come into its own and like uh, start to develop its own like literary traditions and cultural traditions um, for the first time. And uh, what was fascinating about the period was men were still writing primarily in um, Chinese because that was the language of government at the time. And women were not allowed to learn Chinese or write in Chinese because of gender hierarchies. Um, but women were writing in Japanese. They had started to, to write in Japanese and create literature that was really kind of like the first Japanese literature, like literature written in the Japanese language. Um, mm. And so it, it's kind of interesting because since they weren't allowed to write in Chinese, they started creating Japanese literature that did circulate really widely at the time and was actually quite well known within the court society. So like, the court was a very kind of insular community that was like between 300 or a thousand sort of nobility, noble people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And literature was super important. It was like the currency of the court, basically, like in order to properly fulfill your professional and social obligations, you had to be a good writer and a good poet um, because you were judged both personally and professionally on your ability to like write well and be uh, witty and uh, create poems off the cuff and like make the proper poetic allusions and references. Uh, and so the writers were kind of like the superstar celebrity, like rock stars of the time. 
um, because writing was such a key, important piece of the entire like fabric of the society at court. Um, and so actually the, the women in, in, in sort of a funny way were like, they had these, this kind of like dual, like, I guess situation happening. It's not a great way to phrase, it, but like what I'm trying to say is, um, they were in some ways quite limited, right? Like they they were cloistered, meaning like they weren't allowed to show their faces to men who were not their relatives or husbands. Like they had to stay inside most of the time. They had very defined gender roles for men and women. Um, women were not given some of the opportunities to, you know, like make money and like control their lives that men were. Like they had much less freedom. Right. But because they were sort of cloistered with all these women together and it, in a way it provided like a certain amount of freedom because like actually men could like come and go and like visit them at night like there was like a shocking amount of like extramarital affairs and sort of like casual hookups happening sort of simultaneously and so like in an odd way women had like a pretty high degree of like sexual freedom at the time and also like the ladies in waiting of the empress at court were expected to be incredible writers. And so because of that, it, these like salons of ladies in waiting ended up getting the training in the arts and literature and culture that allowed them to become really well-known and like really well-respected writers in both their time and then moving forward. Like this period in time is like this, this really intriguing moment where women were actually really trained and respected as artists. And that kind of like set up this foundation of like women writers in Japan that that didn't happen in a lot of other countries in the world because women just weren't given the training or opportunity to actually write. Whereas in at this particular moment in Japan, they really were. Wow, that's really fascinating. I, I'm learning. I'm definitely learning something, but had no idea about this time. Um, but yeah, what a what an interesting period in time uh, to explore. Um, what was it? What was as, as far as directing goes for this piece? What was challenging about directing this piece? Hmm, let's see. I mean, I think it's been a really like fun and exciting challenge. So it's not like a, necessarily a challenge in a negative way, but we've been really exploring um, me and the design team how we can uh, translate Rosie's world of the play on stage visually and you know auditorially. Um, because the play combines the historical, the 11th century with the 21st century, like contemporary in such a fun way. And we had to figure out like, how do we translate that blend of the past and present into all of the design elements, into the scenic design, costume design, sound design, lighting design, like, and it's been a fun challenge to figure out like, what is the balance of past and present? Um, so for example, how do we create costumes that are not the actual like 20 layer Junihitsue kimono robe layers that the women wore at the time, but we create something that is reminiscent of that while still feeling really fun and contemporary. Like, so what we've done with the costumes is create 
layers in other ways, like different kinds of lightweight fabrics, like tool and organza that are layered on top of each other and creating these kind of uh, necklines for all the women's dresses that look like layered kimono robes, um, but are not actually layered. Um, but then keeping the silhouettes of all of the women's dresses very contemporary, giving them contemporary accessories like you know, Doc Martin boots or like gold ankle boots or something like that. Um, so that we really like uh, create a world that hopefully feels like a complete mixture of past and present, but also like something you've never really seen before that's heightened and theatrical. Um, so yeah, that's been yeah. A, a fun challenge. What will modern audiences learn from watching this play, would you say? I mean, what I would say first is that the play really doesn't feel at all like it's set in another time. Like it, it is set in 11th century Japan, but really I think what people will see when they come to Unrivaled is a completely contemporary story that feels really relatable. And uh, I think hopefully people will be thinking about the opportunities that women artists are given the way we limit women artists like and also I think like the way that the creative and entertainment industries kind of like pit women against each other you know it's so often there's this narrative in like magazines or like tv shows that it's like well there can only be one exceptional woman and that means that like all women have to fight to be that one exceptional woman and women have to tear each other down or like be enemies like i feel like this is happening right now like with selena gomez and like hailey bieber like <laughs> it's like oh they're like feuding and it's like uh and it's like well no they're probably not actually right we just want to have this narrative that like these women can't coexist, that like they have to be enemies. And why should they? They seem to be both do. I mean, I don't know anything about them in real life, but they seem to be doing pretty good well for themselves, both of them. I mean, right, exactly. why? And why? <laughs> exactly. And they think it's what I'm hoping is that yeah. this play is kind of illuminating like some of those, you know, patriarchal mm -hmm. systems that mm -hmm. make us feel like, oh, well, there can only be one woman. Women have to be enemies. And think about like, why does that have to be? Why can't there just be this wonderful community of women that is all mutually supportive and we don't actually have to fight each other? Like there isn't that scarcity. Like we can all like succeed together. Um, and I think the play showcases like how those systems get in the way and like end up undermining the friendship and community that the women start to build together. Um, and in the, you know, in the play, it's quite uh, tragic ultimately, but along the way, it's hilarious and really funny and really relatable. And what I'll also say is that as I was researching, um, you know, the period and the actual women and the literature that they wrote um, and reading, you know, the tale of Genji and the pillow book and both say and Murasaki's diaries, because also we had an incredible dramaturg on this project, uh, Lynn Miyaki, who as a, a professor emeritus from the Claremont Colleges who specializes in this period and these women and their writing. And mm -hmm. she provided us with like a ton of really awesome uh, materials about the period and, and excerpts from the books. But what's amazing about reading their writing is that it doesn't feel 
far away or like in the past really at all when you read it like it the way that they wrote is incredibly contemporary in some ways like it's it's kind of like shockingly relatable sometimes like say's pillow book is a collection of short stories and poems and uh lists uh like essentially kind of like listicles (laughs) um and she has this list that's like things people despise and it's like one a crumbling earth wall two people who have a reputation for being exceptionally good natured and it's like I just thought that was hilarious and like the way that the women in their writing showcase their personality and their like pettiness and cattiness and the sort of mundane insecurities that they had is so relatable and truly truly like makes you feel so connected through time to what they were going through and kind of like how little things have changed in some ways like obviously in some ways things have changed drastically and in others it's like yeah I guess humans have just always felt like this like we've always felt jealous of each other and like insecure and judgmental in really petty stupid ways yeah What's your feeling about things that are set in the past, but they're fictional portrayals? Do you feel like this can be um, something that might be sometimes uh, dangerous as far as creating misinformation, if if not told or explained in the in the proper way? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, and you're totally right. This is a completely fictionalized, like imagined version that Rosie has created because in real history, Murasaki and Sei did not meet in person because they served two different empresses at court that, right. and they they didn't overlap at court at all. There was a five year gap between when Sei left court and when Murasaki arrived at court. So they likely never met in person. Um, However, we know that they were aware of each other because they wrote about each other in their diaries. And Murasaki wrote something like, Say thinks she's so cool because she can write in Chinese characters and she puts them in her books and she thinks it makes her look so cool, but it really makes her look pretentious. (laughs) It's a very like commentary about each other. Oh my gosh. Um, Wow. That's great. Yeah. So we do know that they were aware of each other and each other's writing. Um, I think it's a great point about historical fiction in general. And it's funny, I was just listening to like a radio interview with someone who writes historical fiction primarily. And he was talking about this, about like how careful you have to be when you're, you know, like contextualizing and sort of marketing your work that you make it very clear that it is fiction, right? It's not like, a uh, historical nonfiction book. It's like, it's a novel. Um, And I do think it, historical fiction can be wonderful because I think it's a great entry point into history and like, you know, makes you feel more connected to and a part of the stories and the people of the past. And I think often, you know, makes it feel more exciting than, um, you know, just reading like a history textbook or something like that. So I think it it is wonderful because it really brings people into cultures and places and stories of the past. And I think it can be definitely like a, a sort of confusing or sometimes like 
misinform misinformative or um, manipulative view of history, depending on the story you're telling and who it centers and kind of like how the you know writer is distorting the actual period for whatever story they're trying to tell. So yeah, I do think it's important to properly kind of contextualize the the piece, um, whatever it may be. All right. Uh, one last question. I'd like to know, uh, as, as a director, do you consider yourself more a hands-on director or are you a little bit more hands-off? Do you, do you allow your actors or the, or the people around you to have a little bit of freedom when it comes to the creativity of the show? Um, I guess I like to think kind of both in a way. Um, I mean, I, I really value the collaborative nature of theater and I, tell everyone that right off the bat that I welcome everybody to be contributing ideas and thoughts and questions to the process. Um, in terms of the design process, because I have a design background, I, I really respect the work that designers do. And I hope that throughout this process, I have allowed the designers a lot of like creative freedom and a lot of like mutually respectful collaboration in terms of creating the world of the play. Um, and with actors, uh, likewise, you know, I want them to really bring themselves and their ideas about the characters to the table. And then also, and then kind of, hopefully my job is to act kind of like an editor, you know, and just like say, okay, great. I'm seeing what everyone is bringing to the table. And I think like, actually this version is going to be more helpful in telling this story. And so let's go in this direction and maybe let's cut this other part or other idea that we had. Can you let our audience know when Unrivaled is happening and where they can go to see it? Yes. So the world premiere playwright Serena and Boston Court Pasadena co-production of Unrivaled is playing at Boston Court Pasadena, March 25th through April 23rd. Performances are Thursdays at 8 p.m., Saturdays at 2 p.m. and 8 p.m., Sundays at 2 p.m., and Mondays at 8 p.m. And we are currently in previews for a couple more days before we open this coming Saturday.